G'day and welcome to Grad Chat, uh, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I am your host again for this week's Grad Chat. Today I'm very fortunate to have with me Eric Bateman, who is doing a PhD in history under the supervision of Dr. Adnan Hussain. Welcome to Grad Chat, Eric. Thank you. Eric's topic is, is absolutely fascinating. As you know, I do like history, and uh, so it's great to get when I get historians onto the show with me. And Eric's topic is interreligious encounters during the, the Crusades, uh, as in medieval history. So can you give me just a bit of an overview? Because there's a lot of different Crusades. So can you give me an overview of what your research is focusing on? Sure. Uh, I focus mostly on... Uh, crusades to Jerusalem. So there were some crusades that uh, happened within Europe, and they were targeted at um, people that the church considered heretics. Um, so the Albigensian Crusade, for example, or the Crusades to the Baltic. Uh, I mostly focus on crusades that were headed to Jerusalem. Right. I mostly also focus on the earlier crusades, so uh, sort of first, second, third crusades, okay. if we're going to use the traditional numbering. So that that would be the period roughly 1095 to eleven you know, 91, 95, something like that. In in 1095, Pope Urban II called what became the First Crusade. Uh, so that's where I start. Right. And, uh, and then I go, you know, actually, I should be honest, I haven't quite figured out where I'm going to stop yet. So that's, that's why I <laughs> gave you always, a roughly. You that's know. always a problem with uh, graduate students mm -hmm. and their research. They don't know when to stop. <laughs> that's very, very true. Yeah, <laughs> I'm no exception, unfortunately. <laughs> Okay, so for, for those of us who don't know the full history, we hear this word crusade. So what actually is a crusade? This is a, a very grad student answer, but it, it depends who you ask. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, there's there's some debate in, in the history writing over exactly what a crusade is. I think that for my purposes, you know, it's less important to settle on a, on a firm definition because, like you said, I'm interested in interreligious encounters. Right, right. And so it's more about the situations in which Muslims and Christians were encountering one another, and the Crusades happens to be a great period for that. Right, right. But a crusade, you know, kind of roughly, is uh, a campaign that is called and sanctioned by the church. And that church being... In Europe, um, the, in Roman Europe Catholic the Roman church. Catholic Church. Yes. Okay. Called and sanctioned by the church in order to obtain some sort of an objective and in the classic kind of the classic crusades um, that objective would be to conquer jerusalem right and to um ensure that the holy city jerusalem and and especially the church of the holy sepulcher where traditionally uh, christ was believed to have been buried is in Christian hands. Okay. And so it's the Christians versus the Muslims. The, the or, Muslims, or Islam. Islam, yeah. The, the Muslims happened to control Jerusalem at the time of right. the crusade. And yeah. so they were kind of the, the people that the crusaders were going to have to get through if they wanted to conquer Jerusalem. Okay. So I'm going to ask you a little bit of a side issue here. Not, not an issue, a, a side question. Sure. If you're looking at the religious encounters... Why didn't you do this through religious studies? Although that's, I probably know the answer because they don't have a PhD program. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes the, the the practicalities make our choices easier. Yes. <laughs> you know, I've always been interested in, in history. And religious studies is, obviously as a historian of religion, I uh, really enjoy religious studies. I, I have a lot of respect for the discipline. But when I started, it, it wasn't 
kind of obvious that I was going to be st focusing exclusively on religious encounters or uh, religious okay. history. Right. I kind of thought so. And then the other thing is that in religious studies, you'll have some faculty who are very good historians and very well versed in historical methods, but others who, uh, who approach it from slightly different angles. Religious mm -hmm. studies is almost kind of interdisciplinary in its, yes. in its focus. So if uh, someone who wanted to do history, uh, first and foremost, history was kind of the logical place for me to start. And so what did you do in your master's, if, I don't mind, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, uh, my master's was uh, also here at Queen's and also with uh, Dr. Hussein. Um, and I focused during my master's on Islamic travelers. Okay, um, right. So figures like Ibn Battuta and Ibn Jubar who uh, left Islamic lands to travel to other lands. And, and so you can see the the focus on encounter there as well. They're right. traveling outside of the boundaries of Islamic territory and they're encountering right. people of other faiths. So it was a natural progression. Yeah, that's right. That's good. Yeah. Makes it easier, but then you've got to learn how to stop. That's right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that's kind of told me why you kind of got into that area in the first place. Mm -hmm. So what's the best reason to study the Middle Ages today? I mean, not many people look at that other than what's in the movies and things that right. you see. So so what's the purpose of that, of studying the Middle Ages today? Well, what I've found as I've kind of tried to make sense of this very strange period is that there's something really valuable about encountering people who don't think and act and believe as you do. Right. So I think that history can be in some ways a lot like anthropology, where the idea is to do field work and to go out and, and, and live among people who are very different and try to sort of put yourself in that culture, immerse yourself and come to an understanding of right. what that is, what, what that's like. In history, we, we have to do that using documents. Uh, we, you know, mm -hmm. we, we can't actually ask any of the people who were there, unfortunately. But I think the effect is a lot the same. Modernity in, in our period of history, we, we have certain ways of thinking, certain preconceptions, certain assumptions. And I think there's something really valuable about trying to transplant ourselves outside of those a little bit into right. another way of experiencing the world. And that can help us to question our own assumptions, our own starting points. I would say if I have to, you know, if I have to throw in a word for medieval history, particularly, anthropology is something that takes place in the context of our globalized world. Right. So even though we're encountering people who are very different from us, there's still this phenomenon of globalization that is kind of the backdrop to everything that we do, no, right. matter, no matter where we live. Right. In the Middle Ages, we're, we're going before globalization. We're going before colonialism. We're, we're getting to a place where the, the very backdrop of the world is different. Right, and, right. Uh, so I think that, that can be really enlightening. Is it because around that time there was a lot more travel going on? The, I think there was probably relative today. There was to, relative to today. There was probably less travel. The only people who could travel were kind of the wealthy and and the literate. Right. Um, it, right. it was actually pretty common. And and this is one of the big problems in medieval history in general is that the only people who could read and write were the Nobles wealthy, and yeah, things. The, the people who had been educated. Right. And so no matter what we do, no matter what we study, there's this huge 
population base, probably 95 or 99 percent of the population, that we're discovering almost nothing about because they left Good no point. written records. Nothing there. Um, and so for I, th I think for for the peasantry, for those who weren't lucky enough to be wealthy or noble, it was not terribly uncommon to be born and to grow up and to die within sight of the same church steeple, for example. Right, uh, right. There, there was a, a real attachment to place. Right. Whereas, you know, today, I, every, every um, graduating high school student or, or graduating college student has the chance to take, say, a gap year and yeah. uh, and which is what I did, you know. I went on a backpacking adventure in Europe and got to see things that were um, unfamiliar to my experience growing up. Right, yeah. it does make a big difference. I took off for three years. Mm -hmm. um, what can studying the Middle Ages teach us about ourselves? Like I said, that that chance to to look backward. Um, there's a there's a philosopher named Charles Taylor who is actually a Canadian. He spent his career at, at McGill, um, and he wrote a big book back in 2007 called A Secular Age. Right. And his goal in that book, is, as he states it, is to explain why 500 years ago it was virtually impossible not to believe in God. Right. Whereas today, the default position might be not to believe in God. And he tries to kind of follow the the course of history and understand what changes in terms of people's background assumptions. And he names some really interesting developments. And I, I think that in studying the Middle Ages, you're almost doing the same thing except in reverse, right? You're starting you're starting with our assumptions and then trying to work back. Work backwards, right. And, and see through, mm -hmm. see past them and, and see kind of how things that look to us so irrational obviously seemed to people back then to be totally rational, rational. and compelling. And um, From one group of people, as in the nobles. Right, right, the ones <laughs> that we know said. about. Yes, yeah. the ones we know about. Yeah, that's <clears throat> right. And so I think there's a tendency when we encounter the Middle Ages, the Middle Ages sometimes get a really bad rap right. in, in popular culture. Uh, they're sort of ridiculed as kind of irrational and, and backwards and... and um, barbaric. Barbaric, yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not here to say that there was no irrationality. There was no bar... Of course there was barbarism. But mm -hmm. when we encounter something we don't understand, there can be this impulse to sort of you know, with the Middle Ages to sort of beat on it with these secular clubs right, of ours, right? right? To use our assumptions to batter it down so that right. so that we don't have to really do the work of understanding. And I think um, when you're in a graduate program and you're committing, you know, four or five years of your life to understanding, there's a lot of incentive to sort of put down the clubs, as it were, and right. to, to right. sort of ask, well, you know, I, I'm encountering something that my secular tools can't do a very good job of figuring out. So I need to find new tools. I right. need to fashion new ways of approaching this. So with that then, you kind of touched on the misconceptions a little bit about Middle Ages, but what about the misunderstandings or the common misunderstandings of the actual Crusades? Because mm -hmm. I know myself, the first question, when I, when you first came in, I said, oh, is this about um, Richard the Lionheart and things? And they go, no, that's actually... Wrong period. <laughs> yeah, he was still the, a crusade, but wrong time. Right. Um, he was much later, is my understanding from what you've told me. Yeah, he was part of the Third Crusade. So, so that's the only one I really know. And then the you know the movies that you mm -hmm. see when the the Christians versus the is Islams and and trying to take over Jerusalem and things, which were fascinating movies, mm -hmm. but have 
were they good depictions or they have they helped with perhaps the misunderstanding of what crusade the crusades were about yeah I, that's a really good question for any movie buffs out there I, I should just toss in a word for uh, I mean the most recent crusades movie that I know of was uh, kingdom of heaven mm-hmm. Ridley Scott's movie with Orlando Bloom yes just sort of the word to the wise is, you know, if you're going to watch that movie, you should definitely get the director's cut. It's a, it's oh, is a that much right? better. Yeah, the studio right. cut out a lot of stuff that, that sort of important. made. Yeah, it made the movie cohere a little better. Right. But even in that movie, there's still this this sense. Um, Salah Hedin and and Balian, who's Orlando Bloom's mm-hmm. character, they kind of have this sense that it's religion that's driving people mad, and they both are able to see, you know, the madness of. Right. fundamentalism, as it were. Because it seemed like they were actually could have been really good mates if mm-hmm. it wasn't for this religion. Right. And so the movie, in, in the way Ridley Scott tells it, kind of becomes this morality tale against fundamentalism, which, you know, don't get me wrong, fundam- you know, fundamentalism has its ugly manifestations, right. but uh, there's no real evidence that Salah Hadin and Balian sort of saw the world that way. Okay. You know, so right. so there's good and there's bad in, in those movies. And, and as always, you just have to kind of be, be careful about what mm-hmm. you take on board and, and uh, what you uh, criticize. So, so, but what have you found in, in looking at the research now as some of the, knowing what you know, yeah. some of the misunderstandings that you hear people talk about? Sure. Um, I think one of the things is, when people ask what I study and I say the Crusades, <laughs> almost always the first reaction is, oh, that's very timely. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, because, of course, you know. What's in, going on today. Yeah, yes. in a post-9-11 world and, right. and considering some of the campaigns in the Middle East, for example. Uh, there's this temptation to sort of look back and find historical analogies that remind us of what's happening now. But the thing with historical analogies is you have to be very careful with them. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're very useful when they're done carefully. But when they're not done carefully, they can sort of mislead us. And I think one of the ways that the Crusades, thinking of the Crusades as an analogy for our time, maybe misleads us is that it tempts people to think, oh, this has just been going on forever. forever. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Muslims and Christians or we just Muslims don't call in the it a, West. We just don't call it a crusade these days. Right. And so they say, oh, they've, we've, you know, we've been fighting each other for a long time and there's no reason to think that it's going to stop. And you can almost, there's a temptation to think of this as uh, almost an epic civilizational conflict and only one of us can win. Uh, right. In, in right. fact, there was a, a Harvard political theorist named Samuel Huntington who wrote a book called The Clash of Civilizations, where he really did kind of explicitly say that the West and Islam are destined to fight each other and only right. one of us can win. Right. And he felt pretty sure the West was going to win. But I think we have to we just have to be very, very careful of that. We can't let this tempt us to think of ourselves as being part of a civilizational conflict. Right. That's destined to keep going. Just because there were the Crusades doesn't mean that the same pressures and the same forces are at work today. You know, these are these are campaigns involving the same geographical space, you know, right. the Middle East, mm-hmm. and they're campaigns that are involving the you know Europeans and the descendants of Europeans and Muslims and the descendants of Muslims. But that that certainly doesn't mean that we're. This is just Crusades 2.0, right, and I think right. it's important to avoid thinking of it that way, because if we think that conflict is inevitable, it becomes really hard to 
work towards peace. Can I just clarify one thing? Sure. With the Crusades, it's it's always between, sorry, Christianity and Islam. It's not, a, for instance, Islam or Christianity against Hinduism or any any other religion. Is it right. purely those two? I, I would say that Christianity sort of has to be involved because a, a crusade is is called by the church. Good point. Uh, so the pope okay. the pope sort of has right. to you know give a offer what what is called a crusading indulgence. Okay, right. Um, so we're certainly dealing with Western Christianity, Latin Christianity, right. and the enemy, at least in the classic crusades, usually was Muslims uh, okay. because the goal was to conquer Jerusalem. But that's not always true. There were also crusades against against heretics, for example. Right. Yeah. Um, and and so the I, I would say it it definitely involves the 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 Latin Christianity, but not necessarily Islam. Right. If that's okay. fair. Okay. Yeah. Now we haven't gone into the nitty gritty of your actual research. You've kind of gone a roundabout way of finding out what is a crusade and you know how it's related a little bit to us today. So how does studying encounters between people of different religions challenge or change the way we view religion in modern times? And you have touched on this a little bit, but, I mean, this it always seems, whatever you hear in the news, it's some sort of conflict, and invariably religion is involved. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily Christianity and Islam, but in, in, more often than not, it's religion that's involved. Mm-hmm. Can you explain a little bit about that, and, and particularly also in relation to what you've learned so far in your own research to now? Sure. Yeah, I think that, for me, one of the big things that stands out when I study the Middle Ages is the fact that religion was pretty much all-encompassing. Um, one of the temptations that we have as, as kind of modern people is to think that there's there's the secular, there's the public sphere, where everybody approaches it as a non-religious person. Right. And then there's the private sphere, and that's where religion is, you know, is kind of allowed to exist, right? right. You, you have your private beliefs, but don't bring them out in, in public. Right. Um, so in the United States, there's a separation of church and state, um, which is sometimes used to say, you know, leave your private morality at home and, and uh, get with the program. Right. Um, in France, uh, the the word they use is laicite, which is um, kind of a very aggressive form of secularism, which, which for example, um, recently there's been the controversy in France regarding banning Islamic head coverings at, on beaches. Right, I remember that. Yep. You know, which is kind of kind of uh, a way of saying, okay, you may be Muslim at home, but when you come out in public, leave that behind and just be French. Just French, right? Right. Um, Quebec has had similar, similar things, kinds yes. of controversies, and I think that historically, that that view of religion as something that only exists in the private sphere is just not something you find in the Middle Ages. They they do have this idea of a secular space, the seculum. But the secular space is only considered to be working properly when it's working with the church and when it's, um, right, right. you know, when it's uh, acting as another way of establishing God's order and promoting God's truth, right? right. So, so th- uh, we just don't find this back then. And um, obviously, I'm not you know, making any kind of an argument for theocracy or anything like that. It's just a a way of saying that if we want to understand religious groups, religious people in our time, I think we have to understand that 
faith is is often all encompassing. It's right. something that bleeds over and spills over into every facet of life. And so I think you know if our if our goal is understanding, uh, it's just really important to kind of understand that there is not necessarily any meaningful distinction between public and private. I'm going to go on a, a tangent here because it's going to be way off what we're talking about. Sure, <clears throat> but. It's like sometimes, you know, you, you hear about the soccer hooligans. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're so passionate about their soccer. It is like a religion mm-hmm. to them, and it's it's all-encompassing. And so they have ta- totally taken that within their own beings. Now, of course, you don't have to be such a fanatic. You can be a good fanatic, <laughs> like, um, you know, with your, some of your teams, some of the teams like we have here in, in uh, say, in Canada, like the Maple Leafs and stuff like that, who once a Maple Leaf fan, always a Maple Leaf fan, but you don't have to be aggressive about it kind right. of thing. But it's, it's kind of like, you know, what is religion? Is it this God thing or is it this total belief in something? And yes, this, this is all-encompassing in you. Yeah, that that's a great question too. I mean, I you know, there's whole shelves in the library on what is religion. What is and, religion? Uh, hmm. um, maybe just a, a quick thing to clarify is that uh, in 2011, I'm a fan of the Vancouver Canucks. And right. In 2011, they went to the Stanley Cup final. Yes. And lost. And lost. And there was some pretty serious rioting. In that's the true. Actually, I'd forgotten so. about that, which was so un-Canadian. I don't know. Maybe that's a you know sort of a counter argument to say that. Even Canada isn't as Canadian as it likes to right, pretend. Right, that's true. Yeah. Yes. So, so what what else have you found out about from your studies so far? I, mean, I guess I should ask, how far in are you? Oh, sure. Yeah, I'm just finishing my third year. Okay. Uh, so you've got a lot of research already done. Mm-hmm. So, is it, are you finding out what you thought you were going to find out? Is it coming together the way you want it to? That's a great question. I'm right in the middle of struggling with a couple of pretty thorny questions of right. how to interpret these sources. So I would say I'm at a point where all is chaos. <laughs> I, uh, I love it. <laughs> yeah. I, I really I really can't even I, – I wish I could, you know, speculate about what my conclusion is going to look like. Right. But, I, I, yeah, I think I just need to – this is the stage where – Everything is, is chaotic, and you, you're pretty sure it's never going to organize itself into right. any kind of meaningful it will. form. But hopefully, yeah, everyone, it seems to for a lot of other people. So I'm hopeful, hopeful that, you know, I'll find myself there too. But it must be quite interesting, though, if you go in with a certain concept thinking or certain theory, and as you're going through, you go, oh, I was so wrong there. Oh, sure. <laughs> and yeah. there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's good that you've suddenly found out one way or another, whether this is what you really thought, because mm-hmm. that's the whole point of research. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there, there are definitely ideas that I came into the program not really wanting to entertain, uh, but I've kind of been forced to. Yeah. You know? The the people who who write the books that I don't like, it turns out they're smart too. You know? So uh, yeah, sometimes I have to. You have to be careful you know, what you say then. Huh? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You never know who's listening. <laughs> that's right. No, that's great. So um, so you haven't got well, you're in your third year, so you still got a bit of writing to do, but I'm sure that's going to come along really well. Have you had a chance to, with, with what you have done so far, to go to any conferences or anything and talk about, or, or even go to conferences, n- not necessarily to present yourself, but to listen to some other things that can give you other ideas? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I went to a couple of conferences in my, in my first couple of years, 
and they were interesting. Uh, I was at a bit of a different stage then, and so right. I, I think the papers I gave were pretty kind of exploratory. And um, uh, I wonder, it's a good question, if I went back and read them, would I still... But I think I was just off my rocker, or whatever, you know. Um, but I've actually got a conference coming up in oh, in November, which Excellent. I'm really excited about. It's a, a conference that it's called uh, Historiographical Innovations, and so it's looking for people who are applying unique methodologies to right. historical questions. And so I, I'm I really think it's going to be a great chance to hear what other people are doing and how they're interpreting things. And, right. Um, kind of get some ideas for, for myself as I try to make sense of these difficult Yes, it might sources. help you and uh, not that thing that's stopping you right that's now, right, yeah. but you will break through it, I'm sure. Now, we've got a little bit more time, so I just want to go on and talk about some of your extracurricular or non-academic type stuff that you do. The good thing is you do like to read because you yeah. read a lot of fiction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, anything in particular that you like? Are you into mysteries or... You know, almost anything. I guess it's to get away from the textbook st style stuff. Yeah, exactly. The whole goal is to sort of just uh, lose yourself mm -hmm. for a while. You know, I should, I'll, I'll be honest and say that a lot of the really sophisticated literary fiction I find just takes too much, too much bandwidth. And I, right. I, I, I have a hard time. I rarely have the energy. You know? Yeah, you, want, you don't want to have to interpret yourself. You want someone just to tell you the whole story mm -hmm. and you just get to enjoy it. Yeah. So, you know, I, I read some, uh, I've been reading some Stephen King lately. It was just great for sort of okay. taking you on a ride. I wouldn't know? have expected that. No, I would have thought some more of the, maybe, I shouldn't say that, so maybe some more of the historical ones which have been made into novels, which oh, sure. they're the ones that I yeah. like, you know, it's got the his historical background in it, interwoven into the story. Well, I'll, I, sure, I'll throw in a plug. Uh, there's a book that came out just this year by a writer from Ottawa named Natalie Morrill. Uh, it's called The Ghost Keeper. All right. And it focuses on a um, Jewish man in Vienna who goes through the uh, the Anschluss, the, right. the annexation of Austria by the Nazis, and has to flee the country. Um, his He's separated from his wife and child. It's a story of him trying to find them again and then coming back to Vienna and trying to sort of make a life in the city right. that, that he had had to flee from. And it's a beautiful novel. It, it is oh, literary. It, it is literary, yes, right. It's a, it's a wonderful, and it deals. it's great for a historian because it deals with all these questions of how do we remember the past and how do we right. honor it in a way that is uh, true without minimizing the horrors of it. Right, yes. Um, and so it's called The Ghost Keeper because uh, the protagonist tends the Jewish cemeteries in, in okay, Vienna. right. Um, and right. so he, you know, writes the gravestones right. and, you know, um, these, these sort of neglected That's cemeteries. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's, okay. it's a beautiful book. That's so a good I'd, little plug. I'll yeah, have to remember that one yeah, myself because yeah. I do like, like I said, like reading historical fiction. And and it's Canadian and it's historical, so it's the perfect Even better. Yeah, it's Even really, better. really good. And then the other thing, of course, you're a parent. Mm-hmm. That must be tricky at times. It does to get, get some busy. quiet time. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I'm really, really lucky. Parenting in grad school is a is a vexed issue, and uh, particularly it's a it's a gendered issue um, because right. I think I think it's pretty clear from the the, the data that, that women have a much harder time. Uh, there's a tendency when a I think when a male academic is a parent, sort of is a point in his favor, right? Oh, wow, he's doing this while he's a parent. That's so great. When it's a, when it's a woman who is a parent and trying to do grad school, there's, there's this sort of bias that tends to kick in, and we tend to think of it as a, as a demerit, you know? Right. Um, so I, I, don't wanna, I don't want to oversell 
my my struggles here but but i'm very lucky my my wife works full-time um and makes a good salary and so some of the financial issues that others struggle with are not as pronounced and but but yes you know it it is true that it it becomes hard to find some quiet times must be nice when they go to school and are they at school age not yet yet. my oldest starts in september okay because when they go what what does your dad do Mm -hmm. yeah he's a historian yeah yeah that sounds pretty good yeah I, i it's weird because i never when i'm going out the door in the morning i never know whether to tell them that I'm going to work or going to school. Go to school. You know? yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, see, things. next year we ought to go to school together. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> so, Eric, it's great chatting you, chatting to you. I'm sorry we, it has come to an end. We're going to have to stop there. But I do appreciate you talking about the Crusades. I know we went off on a bit of a tangent, but I think um, it's, everyone's going to find it fascinating of um, – you'll look at what the crusades is mm-hmm. so um and and start thinking about their their own sort of beliefs and how they've bought religion and and see what they see today how that affects them now so thank you very much appreciate thanks so that much. yeah thanks it's been great so that's it everyone another week of grad chat comes to an end don't forget you can download the show um, from either itunes or soundcloud tomorrow just type in a grad chat Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. This show is produced in collaboration with CFRC at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario, with infrastructure support from Queen's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Find more great podcasts at podcasts.cfrc.ca.